Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, you're a wonderful God. And if you never created the world or if you never created us, you would still be wonderful and beautiful and glorious. But we're so thankful that you did because we have a chance to enjoy you forever. So we give you all the praise. We worship you this morning. We lift up the name of Jesus Christ. And as we get into your precious word, encourage our hearts, convict our hearts, and honor your name. For it's in Christ's name. Amen. All right. It is so good to be here. I mean, to actually be here. Um, I have been in my pajamas listening to the sermons for the last three months like you. But my name has been called to get off the bench, and I love it. I couldn't wait to get here, and we're going to look at the Word of God today. I want to say publicly, in behalf of all of the hundreds of thousands of people that are listening on their couch, some people say they're in their pajamas, some people say they come and they, uh, are, they get dressed up. I want to say thank you to everyone every week here, like the tech team and the musicians and Pastor Blodgett, especially Pastor Phil. You guys have carried the load. You've helped us to worship and to walk through this. You've done such a wonderful job, and we are so thankful to God for you. And uh, as we get into the Word today, we're talking about Joseph again. I love studying the life of Joseph. I never get tired of it. As you look at his life, you can't help but be impressed with his actions and his attitudes. But I think if we're not careful, and I think Pastor Phil reminded us of this uh, many times. He was intentional about this. We, he's a great man, but remember, he's only a man with the same sinful struggles, really all the Bible characters were. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Ruth, and Naomi, and Esther, they all had struggles with doubt, and difficulties in their lives, and temptation, and fear. And I know it's hard to see the cracks in Joseph's life, but believe me, they're there. And the same God who gave Joseph grace is going to give us grace, and is giving us grace as we trust him. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, Joseph's life has turned the corner. And it's wonderful to see. And good things are happening uh, to him. Pastor Phil said, I think this was about three weeks ago, he quoted 1 Peter 5, 6. He said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. And I'm thinking to myself, we're tempted to say, it's about time. But then we have to remember that with God, he's always on time. God's never one second late. God's never one second early. He's always right on time. He needs Joseph to be in Egypt at this perfect time, second in command, because the famine is hit. And I know it's been hard to watch Joseph because he has been the underdog, uh, at least for the last 13 years. And... Um, we root for the underdog, don't we? I mean, if you're a normal person, you root for the underdog. My wife and I have uh, watched many movies 
During this quarantine, we love, of course, watching Hallmark movies because uh, they're clean and you never know who's going to get the girl. Only you who watch Hallmark will even get that joke. But sometimes I like watching movies where the bad guys get repaid for their punishment, their due punishment, kind of like Avengers, where it seems like the bad guy's winning the entire movie and then Iron Man comes in or Captain America or Spider-Man comes in and blows them up. And I think that's how we are with Joseph's brothers. We're looking at them and we're saying, God, why don't you do something about these evil, selfish, hard-hearted brothers? And then we realize in this section that we're covering, he is doing something. He's doing something great. He's convicting them of their horrible sin and he's calling them back to himself out of his amazing grace. I should have said he's been convicting them since the day they sold him in Egypt 20-some years ago. I can't imagine how horrible their life has gone back in Canaan for these last 22 years. Proverbs 15, 13, 15 says, the way of the transgressor is hard. And I think their family life was hard. I think they had no joy. I think they were always fighting because they were covering up a sin that was haunting them. So these brothers leave Canaan for the second time to go down south 250 miles It's about a 10-day trip in extreme fear and uncertainty, but they have no idea the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness that awaits them in Egypt. The wound has been opened last week in Pastor Blodgett's message, and now it's so great to see hope and healing again, as we'll see in this section. But I want you to be patient. Because at times, this is like going on the rapids. There, there, there are some rough waters ahead. But I promise you, there will be calm waters. A little bit this week, and then two weeks when I finish this, and I come back, there'll be calm waters again. I was thinking, when Pastor Blodgett mentioned last week, he reminded us all that these guys are the 12 tribes of Israel. And I thought to myself, God's going to have to do something great in these men's lives because right now they are major losers. And you know that. At least 10 of them are. 10 of the brothers are. But Revelation 21 says, in the New Jerusalem, in the capital city of heaven, the 12 tribes, the 12 names will be on the gates of the New Jerusalem in the capital city of heaven. So I'm thinking to myself, These guys have a great future ahead of them. They just have a really bad present right now. And God's changing all that through his power. So I briefly want to look at Jacob's prayer in verse, just just verse 14. He says, may God Almighty give you mercy as you go before the man so that he will release Simeon and let Benjamin return. But if I must lose my children, so be it. 
I don't want to take a lot of time on this because it's not even really my passage. It was Pastor Blodgett's passage last week. I called him about two weeks ago and I said, hey, could you kind of stay away from that prayer because I know Pastor Blodgett leaves no stone unturned. And he says, no, I'm covering that. So I was laughing. I said, well, cover it lightly. And so he was gracious and he did. But I want you to see that Jacob has come such a long way in the past 20 years. And he's letting go of Benjamin. He's like the golden child and he's letting him go. And it's amazing. Jacob, don't get me wrong, he's a little annoying in the last five chapters because he's, he's pessimistic and he's self-centered. But you can tell God's working in his heart because he's letting go. He has, he has no choice. It's either I lose my entire family in this famine or I let Benjamin go to Egypt. And it's so neat how he just says, God, be merciful. I tell you, Jacob has a lot of me moments. This isn't one of them. This isn't one of them. He prays that God would be merciful. God, have compassion. God, have pity on my family and on Benjamin as he leaves. And let me get my sons back. He prays, he calls God, God Almighty. We were reminded last week that that was El Shaddai. God, the all-powerful, the all-sufficient, the covenant-keeping God that told Abraham, my grandfather, who was an old man, who was married to a barren woman, he said, I will make a great nation out of you, Abraham. Trust me. And so it's Jacob's way of saying, God, this is a very difficult situation right now, but I'm going to trust you because you are the all-powerful God. I needed to be reminded of that in the last few months. Have you, have you been reminded of that? Have you gotten alone and said, God, will you help me not to fear? Will you help me to, to trust you more? I hope you have, so I'm not alone. You know, a few months in, before the COVID-19, I had some reoccurring heart problems. And the doctor wasn't sure if he was gonna go in and put a stent or if he was gonna uh, do open heart surgery. So I said, we'll see when we get in there. And so that night, I sat at the table, uh, very, very concerned. And concerned is the word I use instead of worry because it sounds so much less sinful. But I told my wife, you know, I know God's in control, but I just realized that this problem is gonna take my full participation. You know what I'm saying? Some of you are there right now. This affliction, this trouble that I'm going through right now, this is gonna take my full participation. And really, from time to time, most of the time in our Christian life, we get along without a lot of trouble, and I think sometimes God brings and allows affliction in our lives to get our attention, to get our eyes focused back on him. But sometimes it could be absolutely frightening in those times. And I'll admit, I've battled fear in my Christian life. And I'm not talking about only the early years. Fear has paralyzed me before in my life, and maybe it has you. Maybe it is paralyzing you. 
I heard one of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, say something in a sermon on the life of Joseph that encouraged my heart so much. He said this, extreme fear and anxiety comes when I'm absolutely sure what has to happen in my life and I'm afraid God's going to get it wrong. You understand that? Extreme fear and anxiety comes in my life when I'm absolutely sure what God has to do in my life. No, what I have to do today or in the future, but I'm, a, I'm afraid God's going to get it wrong. Think about it. When I'm afraid about the future or even the present, I'm really saying to God, God, something's got to get under your radar. Something's, something's going to happen to catch you off guard. But you got to realize, nothing catches God off guard. You know, I wrote that quote down from Tim Keller, and then I lost it, and I couldn't remember where I put it, and so I had to listen to the whole series again. But I will never forget that truth. Nothing catches God off guard. He knows the end from the beginning. I don't. And it says, all my days, in Psalm 139 says, are written in his book. So I don't know the end from the beginning. God does. I know the ultimate end. I'll be with Jesus Christ forever. I don't know the middle, but he does. And so why not trust him with that and let him worry about that? He doesn't worry about that, but let him deal with the middle and you just live your life trusting him. And in Jacob's wildest dreams, I'm telling you, in his wildest dreams, he would not have believed all the things that God was about to do because in that prayer he said, God, have mercy on my family. And he answers that in an incredible way. Matter of fact, if you were to come to him and say, Jacob, give me a thousand best case scenarios, he would not have guessed this one. Jacob, you will get all of your sons back. All of them. Even Joseph. And when I think about how God answered that prayer beyond what he thought, I naturally thought of Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to his power that is in us. So not only did God give Jacob and his family mercy, but he received so much grace, amazing grace, as we'll see in the next few weeks. Sometimes it's hard to understand the difference between grace and mercy. And sometimes they're even used interchangeably in the scripture. They're really two sides of the same coin of God's incredible love. But grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, like Jesus and the cross and forgiveness and heaven forever and his presence. And mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve, like separation from him for eternity. And as you see the story, there is grace and mercy just working beautifully together as Joseph is offering his brothers mercy. And I know that was a lot of introduction but I really think we needed to be reminded of God's grace and mercy and that we need not to fear because I'm telling you right now, 
Life changes so fast. And diseases come. And heartache hits. Pandemics come out of absolutely nowhere. And this world is falling apart at the seams. But you know what doesn't change? And you know who's not falling apart at the seams? God's wonderful, everlasting, intense love for you. And the Bible says his mercy endures forever. That means it never runs out. And the Bible says in Hebrews 4, he'll always give us grace to help in time of need. Jeremiah couldn't have said it better in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. You need to memorize this if you haven't. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's look at Joseph's plans real quick in verse 15. So the men packed Jacob's gifts and doubled the money and headed off with Benjamin. They finally arrived in Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the messenger of the household, these men will eat with me this noon. Take them inside the palace, then go slaughter an animal and prepare the big feast. So the man did as Joseph told him and took them into Joseph's palace. You know, as far as Joseph's plan, honestly, I don't think that he had a dry erase board somewhere in his palace basement where he had arrows and said, okay, if Benjamin comes with them, I'll go this route. If, uh, if they don't bring Benjamin, I'll go this route. I think he was just being led every single day by the Spirit of God. Remember, Pharaoh noticed something about Joseph. He said, there's a man with the Spirit of God. And so I think he was just going day by day being led by God. But I, I do think that he wanted to kill them with kindness. You've heard that expression. Maybe, maybe you haven't. Maybe I'm older and I, maybe that's used now. When they first came to Egypt on the first trip, he was harsh with them. He disguised himself and he spoke harshly with them. But then after that, he just kept watching over his brothers. He kept filling their bags with grain, putting them money back. He even put them in prison on that first trip for three days. You think that doesn't sound very kind. But he did it so they would be reminded and they began to think about their sin of throwing their brother, Joseph, in a pit. And the more time that they spend with Joseph, the more comfortable they get around him. And he sees his brothers coming back in this passage and he wants to give them a banquet. Matter of fact, he says, slaughter an animal. We're going to have a, a huge celebration. And remember, there's hundreds of thousands of people coming because the entire world's in a famine. And Egypt's the only place that has food. So hundreds of thousands of people. And he looks out and he sees those 10. Remember, one's in prison, Simeon. So he sees 10 coming and he notices his brother Benjamin that he hasn't seen in 20 two years. And I don't know how long it's been since the first trip or the second, probably months. But you know what I thought of? I thought of the prodigal son. Do you remember that? When he goes into the far off country and he takes his dad inheritance and he just, just spends it on loose living. And then he comes to his senses and he comes back to his father. Luke 15 says, while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and he felt compassion, that's mercy, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is probably what Joseph's heart wanted to do. Run out there and just fall upon Benjamin's neck and just kiss him and tell him that he's missed him. But there's still things God wants to do in these brothers' lives, so he couldn't yet. But he shows them tremendous kindness. Romans 2.4, I love this verse. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And I think that was Joseph's ultimate goal for his brothers. He wanted to lead them to repentance, right? Repentance is just, I confess my sin before God and I turn from my sin. That's all it is, you see. And I know God is the one who works repentance in our hearts, but he's using Joseph's kindness and grace and love and mercy. So God's working on the inside Joseph's working on the outside. It's easy to think this, though. This is what I think when I read this story. Why didn't he just reveal himself? I mean, right off the bat, why didn't he just say, on the first trip, it would have saved us a lot of stress, it would have saved the brother's stress? I am Joseph! I think I can answer that for you. And remember this. Don't get up yet and refill your coffee. Listen to this. Remember, Joseph wasn't seeking a family reunion yet. He was seeking full restoration of his brothers. What does that mean? Full restoration means repentance towards God that would result in changed lives that would bring healing to his entire family. You see, if he would have cried out on the first trip, the first time he saw his brothers, I am Joseph, he would have had a great family reunion. But he wouldn't have seen full restoration in their hearts. And there's still that work that God must do. You remember Proverbs 28, Pastor Phil gave it a few weeks ago. Proverbs 28, 13. He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but he that confesses and forsakes it shall find mercy. And they're about to find mercy. I often wonder how these brothers could remain silent for all these years with a living example of grief right in their tent hearing Joseph, hearing Jacob crying about Joseph. And I had to think, Hebrews 3 says that we can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Then I had to remember, sin never tells us the truth. It is absolutely so deceiving. It says, it's okay. God doesn't see it. He won't hold you accountable. And that's absolutely the opposite of the truth. You see, it's not okay. The Bible says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And God does see it. 
Proverbs 15.3 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And he does hold us accountable. Romans 14.12, you know this verse. So then every one of us will give account of himself to God. So if I keep ignoring that truth about sin, it will harden my heart and it will ruin every relationship that I have, relationship with my wife, my kids, my friends, mostly my relationship with God. So full restoration must start with repentance towards God. And oh my goodness, there is a gracious, loving God in the story who is running after these brothers with every step. And he's using Joseph's kindness to bring them back to himself. I can hear you saying this. There's no way I could do that. There is absolutely no way I could forgive someone who has hurt me so deeply like they hurt Joseph. And I would say, you're right. There's no way you could. But if you have been forgiven and loved by Jesus Christ, the Bible says in Romans 5, the love of God has been poured out into your heart when you became a Christian. So God gives you the strength to do that. There's a verse that I love. It's on a lot of t-shirts and tattoos. Um, Philippians 4.13. It's misquoted so many times. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Paul wasn't saying I can do all things in the sense of I can jump off the Empire State Building and land on my two feet or I can join the NFL even though I'm almost 60 and 5'7 and 145. No, he said, I can do all things that God has called me to do, like love my wife and forgive one another when I'm hurt and, and love one another and be merciful and, and gracious and kind even when I'm being severely mistreated. I can do all those things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, look at the next section. God is showing Joseph so much kindness that it is scaring these brothers to death. Look at the brothers' fear. Verse 18. The brothers were terrified when they saw that they were being taken into Joseph's house. It is because of the money someone put in our sacks last time we were here, they said. He plans to pretend that we stole it, and then he will seize us and make us slaves and take our donkeys. <laughs> They're in extreme terror right now. It's like being called to the principal's office for 20 minutes and then have the secretary come up to you and say, you forgot your lunch, your mom brought it in. Can you tell that still haunts me? It was over 50 some years ago, but I sat in that principal's office, scared to death. I went through all the things that I must have done and then she hands me my lunch and says, oh, you just forgot your lunch. Well, multiply that by a million, and that is what, these guys were a mess. They're saying, he's gonna make us slaves. He's gonna, he's gonna frame us. He's gonna take our donkeys. And that doesn't sound very serious, but that's like taking your transportation. He's gonna take our transportation. We'll never leave here. 
Swindoll said it best. He said, unresolved guilt always magnifies our fears. You see, there's a a good guilt and there is a bad guilt. And then there's no guilt. The world says, don't worry about it. Just live your life. You don't need to be guilty about anything. I'm not talking about that. There's a bad guilt. It's being totally forgiven by God and go the rest of my life thinking God's mad at me. That's, a, that's bad guilt. But there is a good guilt. It's the guilt that God works in our life as he brings us face to face with our sin. It's the guilt that David had. Do you remember when he covered his sin for at least a year with Bathsheba? And in Psalm 51, he said this, my sin was ever before me. So in a sense, when I refuse to deal with my sin and the sin in my life, God has a way of reminding me every single day that I need to come and confess that. If you're not a Christian, God has a way of reminding you every single day to come to the cross. Whether it's through a Christian upbringing, message you heard, a worker who shared the gospel with you, God is constantly reminding you. And if you're living disobediently and you are away from the Lord this morning, God has a way of constantly reminding us that we need to come home. We need to confess our sins. And I think this was happening to Joseph's brothers for all those years. Every time they heard an old man in their tent cry out, Joseph, I miss you. It was like a dagger in their heart. And guilt and fear dominated their lives. I'm not really sure when the prodigal son came home. I'm not sure if he was gone five years, ten years, one year. But the Bible says he came to his senses. He came to his senses. That means the guilt, fear, and sorrow and repentance were already working in his life, bringing him to the point where he says, I'm in a pigsty and I need to go home because I have offended God. And I have a note here. You can't generate that yourselves. You cannot generate repentance on your own. God has to work that in your heart. So right now, if you're sensing God reminding you of your sin, reminding you that you have to deal with it, that's not you stirring it up emotionally. That's God pressing you, saying you need to deal with this. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Even repentance is God's gift to us. So we're not boasting. Can you imagine getting in heaven and just saying, how'd you come to Christ? Well, I kept five of the Ten Commandments. And somebody coming up and say, I kept all of them. And I added 600 more. And you say, wow, I can't beat? That's awesome. That is so cool. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen in heaven is we'll all have a different journey, but we'll all have the same story at the end. I came to the cross. I confessed my sin And I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he saved me. 
And you'll say, wow, that's my story too. And there's no boasting. There's no boasting of that. Look at the grace that the steward had on them. Amazing grace, I called it, in verse 19. The brothers approached the manager of Joseph's household, and they spoke to him at the entrance of the palace, and they said, sir, we came to Egypt once before to buy food, but as we were returning home, we stopped for the night and opened our sacks. And then we discovered that each man's money, the exact amount paid, was in the top of his sack. So here it is. We have brought it back with us, and we have also had additional money to buy more food. We have no idea who put our money in our sacks. And I love this. This is the amazing grace of the steward right here. He said something in the Hebrew, shalom. Your Bibles might say, peace. Relax. Don't be afraid. The household manager told them, your God and the God of your father must have put this treasure in your sacks. I know I received your payment. And then he released Simeon and brought him out to them. I think this is so funny. A pagan employee was reassuring their hearts not to fear, but to have peace. Actually, I rewrote that. I said, or maybe he wasn't a pagan employee anymore. Maybe he saw with his own eyes and believed when he saw and witnessed the one true God because he saw him so clearly in Joseph's life. I think you'll run into the steward in heaven. I really think you will. I think he was a believer in God. And look what he does next, verse 24. The manager then led them into Joseph's palace. He gave them water to wash their feet, and he provided food for their donkeys. <laughs> they were told they would be eating there, so they prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon. It looks like his brothers are starting to calm down, and their fear is disappearing, and God is beginning to calm their restless hearts as he brings Simeon out from prison, which I guarantee you, Simeon was probably treated royally. He probably gained weight in those months in prison. He gives them water to wash up food and he gives them uh, to wash up and he gives them food for their donkeys and then he gives them time in the palace to arrange their gift bags for Joseph. These men are getting the royal treatment, even though they deserve rush, rough, rough punishment. And I had to think, that's a great picture, how God treats us. You see, we deserve judgment, but God gives us mercy. We deserve condemnation, but God gives us a great salvation. We deserve rejection, but God adopts us into his family, and he calls us his bride. Remember what I said about the rough waters. Here comes the calm, the family feast. When Joseph came home, they gave him the gifts that they had brought him, then bowed low to the ground before him. After greeting them, he asked, how's your father, the old man who you spoke about? Is he still alive? Yes, they replied, our father, your servant, is alive and well. And they bowed low again. And then Joseph looked at his brother Benjamin, the son of his own mother. Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? May God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. Then he went into his private room where he broke down and wept. 
After washing his face, he came back, keeping himself under control, and then he ordered, bring out the food. Joseph, when it says he was overcome with emotion, some of your Bibles say his compassion grew warm for his brother. That word is mercy. Remember what Jacob prayed for? Mercy. What is this? This is mercy coming to the brothers. Look at the emotional meeting. This was an emotional meeting. He breaks down. And think about it. He hasn't seen Benjamin in 22 years. Benjamin was probably two or three years old when he was taken away from his brothers. There was so much he wanted to say to him. There's so much. Can you imagine? Benjamin never knew his mother. She died giving birth to Benjamin. There's so much he wanted to tell him. And so he just breaks down. And remember, I think we need to remember this throughout the whole story. Joseph didn't have the ending. He never thought he would see his brothers again. And now he's looking at all of them, even his precious brother, Benjamin. I call this the coincidental seating. The waiter served Joseph at his own table, and his brothers were served at a separate table. The Egyptians who ate with Joseph sat at their own table because Egyptians despise Hebrews and refuse to eat with them. Joseph told each of his brothers where to sit, and to their amazement, he seated them according to age, from the oldest to the youngest. This is a great scene. Henry Morris says that there's a one in 39 million chance that Joseph will get this right. <laughs> I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall as Joseph picks the seating chart. Can you imagine Reuben, Simeon, Levi next to Simeon, and Judah, and Dan, and Naphtali, and, and Gad, and Asher, <laughs> Is a car. He's just seating all of his brothers. Naphtali and the guest of honor, Benjamin. It says they were amazed. I don't know what the Hebrew word for amazed is, but I'll bet it's jaw dropping to the floor. And I think they're starting to realize as he seats them all in order of their age, this is not a random event. And God's hand is in this. Think about this. Who does that? Comes to Egypt where they worship many gods. And everybody who the brothers meet, they're saying, peace, shalom. I fear God. God be with you. God's taking care of you. Who does that? It's God assuring their hearts. This is a fairly funny verse here. The preferential feeding, I call it. And Joseph filled their plates with food from his own table, giving Benjamin five times as much as he gave the others. So they feasted and they drank freely with him. I think it's humorous because you're bringing all this food, had to be good food, from Joseph's table to the brothers, and then they're giving Benjamin five times as much, just piling it on the youngest. I think it's a serious scene because Joseph was testing his brothers because the last time they saw their little brother getting preferential treatment, they threw him in a pit and they sold him to slave traders going down to Egypt. 
So guess what? I think they passed this test because it says they drank and were merry with him. I guess we have our answer. They were excited. They looked over at all the treatment he was getting and they just said, let's just rejoice. And they were rejoicing in that. And I wrote this down when I finished this whole sermon. I was thinking about this, this feast that they're having and the kindness that Joseph is showing his brothers. And I wrote this down. The one who has received so much grace and mercy in his life is now dishing it out in large portions. The one who has received so much grace and mercy, that's Joseph, in his life is now dishing it out in large portions. And if you've received God's grace and his mercy in your life, you know what I'm going to ask you. You know, you know the question. What are you dishing out to others, to your spouse, to your kids, to those you work with, to those who disagree with you, to those who have wronged you, what are you dishing out to them since God has changed your heart? And you might be saying, you know, I really don't see much mercy or grace from God in my life, so I can't really relate to this message. I can help you with that. I really can. Although many people today don't want God in their lives, they want nothing to do with God he still blesses them with his goodness and his loving kindness. He can take, you take a deep breath and you feel your heart beating and that's God's gift of life to you every single day that we take for granted. You see a beautiful sunset and you experience all the things in life where you can love someone or be loved or God has even given us friends in our life to, en to encourage us for those times when life is not, not so good. He does all these things because he wants to show you his goodness. Again, it's Romans 2.4. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Theologians call it God's common grace. And common grace can't save you. It just makes you accountable before God as you see everything he has done in your life. And then he offers you saving grace. Saving grace, what's that? God, in a sense, is saying, do you want to know how good and how kind I am? I sent my only beloved son to die on the cross for you because your sins had made a great separation between us. And I raised him from the dead on the third day. And I offer full forgiveness to you if you confess your sins and come to the cross and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called salvation. It's God's greatest gift to us. You see, you can receive all the good things that God has given you in this life. A beautiful family, awesome marriage, good health, wonderful friends. 
and you could miss the most important thing that God has ever or will ever give you, and that is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Mark 8, 36 says it so well. What shall profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or in a different sense, what shall profit you if you enjoy all of God's common grace and you refuse his saving grace? One of my heroes went, to, went home to be with the Lord a few weeks ago. Ravi Zacharias. He has been ministering for over 40 years. He was an apologist, Bible teacher, philosopher, the most humble man. He would speak in front of thousands of college students and be so gracious. He tells a story about how he came to Christ in India, and it's amazing He grew up in a family that put a lot of pressure to succeed. So his dad said, Ravi, you're 17 years old. I see no signs of you succeeding in this life. You'll probably be a complete failure. So Ravi right then said, life became meaningless to me. I saw life as meaningless as a 17-year-old kid. So he runs to the chemistry lab and he pours every liquid he could find into a beaker. And he runs home, he ran into his bathroom, and he drank it all. This is where God's mercy comes in. It made him extremely thirsty. So he runs out of the bathroom and drinks a lot of water, and his mom catches him, and they rush him to the hospital. And he's on his deathbed. And a man comes in and gives his mom a Bible. And as she begins to read this Bible in her broken English, She reads the words in John 14, because I live, so shall you also live. As a 17-year-old man on his deathbed, he said in a weak voice, read that again. She said, because I live, so shall you also live. Ravi said right there, he vowed, God, if you let me live, I will pursue you with my whole heart and I will not leave one stone unturned in pursuing your truth. And God saved him. And he, and he ministered 40 some years. God granted Ravi mercy and grace in that moment. And I don't know what the condition of your heart is this morning. You know. So I would implore you and pray that God would do the same for you. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, this is my prayer, that you would realize there's a God of mercy and of grace. And yesterday doesn't count. And tomorrow may never come. But my friend, today, there is plenty of mercy and grace for you at the cross. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, What a great message through Joseph's life. Giving his brothers kindness and mercy. I pray that there are Christians that are listening. 
they need to come to you and to kneel and to repent of their sin. God, give them the grace to do it today because you say there is full joy when we come to you in the cross. And God, if there are those today that maybe this is the first time they've heard that you've given them a saving grace, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for them, could you pierce their heart today? Let them know you love them so much and change their lives. I ask this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's good being with you today. You have a great week and God bless. Thank you for joining our worship service online today. Our prayer is that the worship and teaching will inspire you to love God, love others, and influence the world for Jesus Christ. If you made a spiritual decision today, we'd love to know about it. You can click on the link for our online connection card. If you haven't yet, you can download our church app and you can see more opportunities and messages and even share this message with a friend. And go to our website, fbclcart.org, for even more opportunities. We hope to see you back here next Sunday morning at FBC Elkhart.